Welcome to episode two of The Best Women. People sometimes interview me about it and say, do you think things have got better since then? I think they've got worse. Joan Smith, my guest today, is a journalist, an author of several books of fiction, as well as a renowned feminist theorist. Her groundbreaking book, Misogynies, is one of the most celebrated feminist texts by a British author. First published in 1989, the book has never been out of print. Joan and I discuss a number of current issues relating to feminism. And we also look back on the days in the 1970s when a serial killer of women, known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was stalking the north of England, with Joan, a young reporter, picking up the story, and me, an even younger, new feminist, protesting the botched police investigation and misogyny of the media. I meet up with Joan in her London home, and because we're having an uncharacteristically hot summer at the moment, we do the interview in her garden. So Joan, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you as ever. And how could I do a series on misogyny without talking to you? Not just about your groundbreaking book, Misogynies, but also about the way that you have campaigned, actively campaigned against misogyny and its consequences. Would you just tell me about how this all started? Because we were both in Leeds around... I was in Manchester. You were in Manchester, forgive me. So... I was a young feminist in Leeds from the end of 1979 until 87. And tell me about your start as a, a young reporter and what you came across at that time. So I moved to Manchester in, I think, the end of 1978. And I had, before that, I'd been working on a local newspaper in Lancashire. And I decided to move into radio because I thought it, you know, there'd be fewer, fewer people, so I'd get onto big stories more quickly. Obviously, by then, um, what was being called the Yorkshire River Murders was a big story. I'd been vaguely aware of it. I didn't know Manchester at all. Um, you know, I was born in London, lived in the South all the time. So I suddenly found myself working in, in a city where this, this serial killer had killed two women, particularly brutally. Um, Jean Jordan and Vera Millward and um, so so by then it was qu quite advanced into the series of murders and attacks and I found myself in a city I didn't know working late shifts so one week in three I'd start work at three in the afternoon and work till one in the morning and I'd be driving around I'd be the only reporter on in, in the evening I'd be driving around this city where I knew this man was killing women um, I knew that even more had been killed in Leeds, Bradford and so on. And I was just driving around on my own, you know, with an A to Z open on my knee, going to interview people. And I felt incredibly at risk. And then I, got, then I started being sent to the press conferences. And when Josephine Whitaker was murdered in um, Halifax, that was the first one I went to. And she was a young woman who was working as a building society clerk. And she was walking home. Um, from seeing her grandmother when she was attacked by this man. And I got a call saying, go to Halifax, there's another Ripper murder. So I got there and there was the forensic tent was, was there. It was quite early in the morning and it just shook me that, I don't know if the body was still there or not, but it shook me that it really brought home to me what was happening. And I went straight from that to a press conference where I was exposed to the, the Yorkshire Ripper Squad. <sighs> right, so tell me, so you'd gone, presumably your newsroom was all male. It wasn't all male, there were several women, but what I noticed was that there was, there was a big table that we all sat around um, preparing our intros and editing 
and so on. And whenever there was a, a you know, so-called ripper attack, we'd get the news and um, the men would say, oh, wow, wow, there's been another attack, and the women would all go ashen. Right. So, in other words, they thought, another sexy story, another front-page lead. And I didn't know any woman at all who was excited by it, but I, most of the women I knew, we all felt that we might be at risk. And I, I started looking at the cuttings, because in those days you had packets of cuttings, right. and I was working out the sequence of events. And it very quickly became clear to me that this was all nonsense about him targeting prostitutes, you know, that, I mean, what other word can one use? I mean, I, I don't use the word sex worker, Of obviously. course. Yeah. But this is what the word that was used, it was he's killed another prostitute, meaning he's killed another woman, and we assume she's a prostitute because she was out having a drink on her own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, I became quite disturbed by the whole thing, and... In, I think, about June or July of that year, 79, um, we were told there were going to be simultaneous press conferences in Manchester and Leeds, and this was going to be a very exciting, big story, because we were going to hear the voice of the Yorkshire Ripper. So um, the police, Greater Manchester Police, they had their own Ripper squad, and they did a stunt, so they invited the press to go to um, uh, a police station where they were going to play the tape first, the famous tape they were going to play that to a, a group of prostituted women to warn them that there was a killer on the loose as if they might not might not know Dear God. so when i got there um the prostituted women were coming out and so we stopped to speak to them then went inside and there were only two women there was um all the cops were male all the journalists except for me and one other woman were men and as we went in, I had my hair tied up and I was carrying a huge old tape recorder and carrying a notebook and a pen. And the head of the Ripper Squad looked at me and said, sorry, love, you're too late, the pros conference is over. The pros conference. Oh, my God. And tell me, you said that you were first introduced to the Ripper Squad. Just try and describe visually what that was like. It was a row of men of a certain age, um, led by uh, the, the assistant chief constable, George Oldfield, who was a very old-fashioned type of cop, you know, big, beefy. He wasn't tall, but he was heavy set, very red face. Um, heavy drinker. Heavy drinker, drinker's nose, all of that. And what was astonishing about it was the confidence with which they came out with actually a load of complete and utter rubbish. Um, you know, they knew all about him. They knew what kind of bloke he was. They were going to catch him. And from that very first press conference, I thought they haven't got hope in hell. And, and, and I got more and more angry about it. And the day that they mistook me for um, a prostitute, it was just because I was a woman in a place yes. they didn't expect. Which, in fact, from uh, because I was um, obviously a young feminist in Leeds at the time, in the build-up to him being caught at the end of 1980. But I understood from reading the Yorkshire Evening Post from the women's group that I'd got involved in, Women Against Violence Against Women, mm. an absolutely rabid feminist group against male violence, brilliant women. And what the police were saying in their press conferences that I watched on the TV, that they assumed any woman that this man was killing was a prostitute because there were deserving victims and there were undeserving victims. There were innocent victims. Innocent they used innocent, didn't they? Did. they? Yes, so they so did. tell me about that, because you were in the, at the hub of the reporting on this, and you must have seen the Yorkshire Evening Post and the, the way that they actually oh, gosh, told the yes. story. And um, there was a very famous press conference um, where it was another of the senior cops. Um, he decided to address the killer 
directly. And they, they were so entitled and so narcissistic that they thought that the killer was really interested in them. Um, and I could see no reason at all why he would be. But anyway, so he had, this guy, this cop addressed, a senior detective addressed the killer and said, um, uh, you know, you hate prostitutes. Well, you know, lots of people do. But you're now, you've now made a terrible mistake and you've killed an innocent yes. victim. And this was Jane MacDonald? Jane MacDonald, yeah. And she was 16, wasn't she? So, so that kind of galvanised the innocent victim slag. Whore. But what was interesting was when I went to the Sunday Times, which was at the end of 79, I got a job on the Sunday Times Insight team, and I said, if I come, we have to do the Yorkshire and Ripper murders because they're messing it up, and I think I know how. And so I think what they do... I, I worked out that they had, they'd, they'd included a murder that he probably hadn't committed, Joan Harrison and Preston. Yes, of course. And there was a lot of forensic evidence from that murder, but there weren't from the other murders, and there was no reason why he would suddenly be, you know that careless but they were using that that forensic work to exclude suspects so I said we we, we really really should do this how so, old were you then Joan when you got that job in 79 what age were you 26 and you trained as a journalist in, from university from school no no I, 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 I went to university did a degree in Latin stayed on a year because my then boyfriend was finishing an engineering degree and then got a job on a local paper in Blackpool right yeah. So you did the, the old-fashioned yes. kind of learning whilst doing. But when I went to the Sunday Times, the Americans had just passed the first Freedom of Information Act. So when I said we really need to do the Yorkshire River murders, we talked about it and we decided, we'd never used this before, we wrote to the FBI and we said, um, have you got anything on the Yorkshire River murders? Because we knew that there was a secret report compiled by West Yorkshire Police within right. Greater Manchester. We also knew that because of the long gaps between some of the murders, they had circulated it to other countries to see if there were similar murders elsewhere. So we did that. And almost exactly a year later, um, this envelope arrived with lots of American stamps. And when we, when we opened it, there was just a slip of paper from the FBI saying, this is all we've got. And we had the, we had the secret report. And when I looked up Jane MacDonald, who was their, their star innocent victim, they didn't think that at all. They really disliked her. Um, really? Oh, yes. And what was in their secret report then? What was the contents of it? So it, it, um, it, had, it had forensic stuff, so it had things like the tyre marks left at the scene. It, had, uh, an, you know, it, it told you what the weapons were, which wasn't public knowledge. But it went through the, the, the attacks one by one, and it described the women. In the case of Jane MacDonald, who, as you said, was 16, um, it said that she'd actually gone out that evening. She'd... Um, She'd, she'd met a boy and um, they'd had some kind of contact but then she'd said she had her period so they hadn't, anyway there was a lot of detail about mm -hmm. that and then she was walking home when she was attacked and it was very clear that they disapproved of her and then Olive Smelt who was a delightful woman who I, I yes. interviewed um, She's one of the survivors Yes, so she was actually probably the second or third victim and she was actually um, an office cleaner who lived in um, Halifax I think it was and um, what it said about her was that she was a married woman who was of loose morals Ooh. and that's that's a quote and yes. she, she was accustomed to go to public houses without her husband. That was a light bulb moment for me back in the day because I realized of course two things were going on in my train of thought then. I was a new feminist, but I was learning fast because we'd gone into this cesspit of misogyny in Leeds where 
I suppose a stone had been lifted up and what crawled out was horrific for women to see. Yes. It was there, bubbling beneath the surface. And the Sutcliffe murders and the response to it from the police and the press compounded that. So we were angry, first of all, that there seemed to be this narrative from the police and the press that, well, you can understand men killing prostitutes. Yes, yes. And it's just cleaning up the streets, in a way, which is what Sutcliffe went on to say to his brother later yeah, yeah. on when he was in prison. Uh, just cleaning up the streets, our kid. And, and so that was a sense, as you mentioned earlier, the police at the press conference saying directly to the killer, um, many of us don't like prostitutes, it's understandable. So that was horrific for us as feminists to, to hear. But then the other thing that was running through my mind and through the mind of everyone that I talked to in the know was that, but what do they mean by prostitute? Mm. Is it that these women are simply out drinking on their own or enjoying sex with men outside of marriage? And that's enough to have us labelled prostitutes. Mm. So in fact, I think the police knew fine well, didn't they, that they could label women prostitutes even if they weren't directly selling sex, yes. but just meaning slags. There was an interesting thing. I also interviewed Anna Rogolsky, who was another of the early attacks and um, survivors. And when I read the uh, account of what happened to her, they made a point of saying that she had West Indian boyfriends. Uh, and what was interesting she's about She's a white that, woman. She's a white woman. But what's interesting about that is, you know, there were a small number of things we knew about whoever this person was, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper. He was a man. He was white. There was no suggestion whatsoever that, any, that he was anything but. And, you know, Olive had said he was a local man, so we knew he was a white man from Yorkshire. And yet, in the case of this woman, they couldn't resist mentioning that she had West mm -hmm. Indian boyfriends. Well, and we knew, I mean, at the time, I grew up in a white working-class council estate, and if a girl had any kind of liaison with black men, some of the girls on my estate would travel to Yarm, not that far from, I mean, you know it, because yeah. it's your manner, isn't it? Um, where there were, there were dances and some African-Caribbean men would go. And any white girls from our estate that, that had any liaison with black men were seen as slags, that was it. And it was based on racism, obviously, and misogyny combined. And Chapeltown in Leeds, obviously where Sutcliffe used to curb crawl and yes. pick up victims and stalk victims, um, was very much an African-Caribbean area. Lots of, lots of um, off-licences, yeah. lots of drug dealing, lots of poverty. Taxi firms, all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Late night curry yeah. houses. Yeah, and yeah. Shabines, late night yeah. illegal raves, and a lot of police harassment. And I think that they saw that as just a no-go area. The people in there, they were just scum, weren't they, the people in Chapeltown? And you see, I, I suppose I had two thoughts on top of all of that. The first was, these men are so misogynist themselves that... Um, how will they know when they when they have if you know by by some extraordinary chance they actually pick him up how will they know mm -hmm. because you know the kind of jokes that they made about women including dead women were so vile and i thought i, I remember reading an interview with one of the cops and he said the day we have him sitting across the table we will know he doesn't mm. have to confess we will know and i thought that's the famous copper's instinct isn't it but how will you know because he would have ripper written across his forehead yes and he'd have a cloak and a yeah. dagger yeah but the other the other thing that 
I realised was I thought we are not protected. None of us right. are protected. And that's right. actually become a kind of theme of my campaigning and the work that I do, that, you know, the, the, the criminal justice system exists, but it certainly doesn't, it doesn't do its... If, if you think at any point its job is to protect women, and, uh, to stop attacks against women, to punish the men who attack women, that's not happening. And so when he was caught by South Yorkshire police, by a traffic... Patrol. Yeah. I, th I thought that was the only... I used to go to those press conferences and I'd be heartbroken. I mean, I remember going to the one after Jacqueline Hill was killed yeah. in, um, in Leeds. Yeah. And um, so, so that week, it had become a huge story. And I went to this press conference and, in Milgarth um, Police Station and I stood by the door and watched people sign in. There were over 100 journalists and film crew there. Five women... Five, five women journalists. Out of all of those. Out of all of those. And, you know, including... To TV crews from other countries, row of men as usual, and I stood there and I thought they're never going to catch him, and I know why they're not going to catch him. You know the the day that Jacqueline Hill was her the day her body was found. Thank you. Um, just to let you know, it's it's actually gin, not lemonade. We're drinking <laughs> at this stage. Um, that was a joke. Uh, the day that her body was found, I, I lived less than a mile away from where her body was found. I lived in the YWCA. Uh, with my girlfriend at the time, we were both very young, had no money. I was involved in feminism. She was working at Vidal Sassoon's in, um, on Bongate or wherever it was. And we went to Milgarth Police Station with our black banners and placards and we were shouting through loud hailers about, you know, catch this man, um, do your job, you know, end male violence. And it was absolutely heartbreaking because th we knew that it would take just an error of judgment on the killer's part and that the police were never going to, to, to rise up to the job. And then there was a kind of sense of defeatism in the city, but also there were people... You could hear women and men talking on buses, decent, well-meaning women and men, saying, this is terrible. I mean, she was at university, she was a student, she wanted to be a probation officer. Mm. And I remember, I don't know if you know Ruth Bundy, um, she's a a solicitor, human rights lawyer, brilliant woman, uh, feminist in Leeds, who had been in a meeting with Jacqueline Hill. Um, oh, on the night she died? Yes, yes, yes. And and Ruth was in our group. She was in Wavor. And, and all of it was just very connected. We were close by. It was in our city again. The police had botched again. And at the same time, and you'll know about this, obviously, weeks earlier... Um, the Leeds, the Leeds football fans, at the pitch. What was was it? Milgarth pitch? Yes. No. What did they call it? Oh um, um, no, Milgarth is the police station. Yes, it's uh, Elland Road. At, at Elland Road at the the Leeds football stadium, the police had tried to contain these drunken, unruly football fans, and they started chanting 12 nil at the police, like you know he's killed twelve, ha ha ha, and you haven't caught him. It felt that was a very, very, very low point. That, I mean, obviously. And do you remember the Guantanamera song, the One oh, Yorkshire Ripper? There's only one Yorkshire Ripper. I do, and I, oh God, and I remember a male led anarchist group, what other kind is there, <laughs> in Leeds that formed called um, the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper Squad. Meaning, this man is a true anarchist, he can do what he wants and fuck the police. All this time, Joan, was the book Misogynies brewing in your mind when did it start to take shape um so so he was caught and the trial was in 1980 and 
not long after that, I thought about writing a book about the case, and I'd never written a book at that time. And I even sort of started without a publisher or knowing anything about publishing. I started doing it, and then I thought, there's something wrong with this. And I put it to one side for ages and ages, and um, eventually left the Sunday Times and started writing books about other things, but always it was in my mind. And then towards the end of the 80s, it must have been about 86 or 87, I started thinking, I know what's wrong with, the, with, with just writing about the case. It's because it, it, what's important about this case is the context, and the context is misogyny. So what if I actually wrote a, a book where that's the big chapter, but there's lots of other stuff about you know, everyday misogyny, about different aspects of it. So I wrote an outline for my editor at Faber, who loved it, sent it to my then agent, who said, oh no, this is a terrible mistake, there isn't a book in this, and um, I Gosh. really think this would be a terrible mistake for you to write this. Did uh, she say why? I don't think she got it, and, um, but, but Faber, the editor at Faber, fortunately said, yes, yes, do it. And even then it took me ages, because the thing I've left out is that I think this is the start of my PTSD. Um, which I've had for years, and um, I think it was because I interviewed several of the surviving women. Yes. And I had one, uh, this, is, this, uh, this is very macabre. So when I went to see Anna Mrigolsky, it was an evening, and she let me into her house, and I explained I was a journalist, and she let me in. And she started talking about the attack, and then she grabbed my hand and said, feel my skull, you can actually feel the damage to my skull. Oh which was really shocking. And the next day I went to see Olive Smelt, and by then, this was after Jacqueline Hill had been murdered, so there was a lot of press around. And again, Olive invited us in, and, and there was, um, I had a photographer, I think, and <clears throat> some film crews were there, and we were all crammed into her little house, and they all looked at me and said, do you want to start, because, you know, I'm the woman. And anyway, we started interviewing her, and Olive suddenly said to me, oh, Joan, do you want to feel the damage to my skull? Because he'd caved in the back of their skull, hadn't he? Mm -hmm. So there was a huge cavity in there. And yes, and they had steel plates and things, yes. I think. I think. And anyway, and I, I found myself saying, oh, it's okay, Olive, I felt Anna's. And um, I also interviewed Maureen Long that time, who was yes. very, very damaged by it. Anyway, um, so I think that was the origin of my PTSD. And also that sense of unsafety, just knowing that we weren't safe. And for years, I had pursuit dreams about the Ripper. It was interesting when when he was on trial. The Sunday Times said to me, "You you, you know, it was, it was it was a hot ticket, the old Bailey." And the paper had a couple of tickets, and they said, "We don't need you to write about it, but do you want to go? Because you spent so much of right. your time on this case." And I, I refused, and I said, "No, because he's not important. He's a completely insignificant little man, and what would I get from looking at him? Probably." I would go to the courtroom. I would hope, like everybody, that he has horns and you know yes. that he breathes fire. He'd actually be a little insignificant man from Bradford or wherever, and I don't want to put myself through that, and I wouldn't learn anything from it, so I didn't go. But in my dreams, he was there, and it was curious because eventually, when I decided to write misogynies, and I, it was very harrowing to write, particularly the Yorkshire Ripper stuff, afterwards, those dreams disappeared. So, at the time, you wouldn't have thought it as therapy or some kind of healing process, but that's how it turned out. Yes, strangely. Um, when the book came out, that was a very mysterious experience because um, I'd, I'd never published anything very controversial before. And, I mean, I'd written a book about the development of the British atom bomb and the tests in <laughs> Australia and all of that, and I'd written... Gosh, you're a very... Um, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, so, so your skills are many. My, my, I, I had, 
people were ringing me to interview me and I didn't have any copies of the book. So I rang Faber and said, I don't have any, you know, are you going to send me some copies? And they said, oh, sorry, um, we've got to stop on sending it out at the moment. And I said, what? And they said, oh, no, it's all right. It's just that it's, it's sold out before publication and we're having to reprint. How amazing. And so then I was, I was doing all these interviews and um, the Telegraph was particularly awful. And um, they called me a feminazi, I think. And um, You should be very proud. <laughs> and I think the review actually said Joan Smith doesn't realise that the vile ideology she espouses in this book leads straight to the gas chamber. What? Feminazi because, of course, fighting for women's liberation and against male violence is like invading Poland. Yes. Right. Yes. And it obviously is remains a really important book, and you told me earlier that it's never been out of print no. since 1989. That's incredible. And I remember reading it. I remember very clearly reading it. Um, I read it as it came out. We all had it. Um, so I would have been, you know, 28, in my late 20s. I remember I was, I was with, with Harriet, my partner. We'd got together when I was 25, and she, she forced me to read proper stuff. You know, I'd, I'd by that time, I think, been, been um, coerced into university, and so I could read. In fact, I do remember exactly when I read it. I'd just started an access course because I'd had I'd left school without any qualifications. So I went to an access course which helped prepare me to go to a polytechnic, as it was then. Um, and that was the book that I read. And it was such an important book because I hadn't realised um, some of the historical references were new to me. But also, I suppose, it just galvanised for me how it all came together culturally, socially, politically, legally. And, and that was what was really important and it unfortunately is still as relevant today because we have those social political legal atrocities which you've never let go of have you well you know people people sometimes interview me about it and say do you think things have got better since then i think they've got worse yeah in many ways i agree with you i think they have i think we're in the worst one of the worst misogynistic backlash that we've ever experienced it's certainly since I became feminist and if you look at you know they were pretty bad at investigating rapes and murders then and look at where we are now so about three or four years ago um, when I was chairing the mayor of London's France against women and girls board and I was talking to the London victims commissioner Claire Waxman and we'd been we'd been having meetings and talking about the extraordinary demands made on rape victims the way they're treated as suspects and you know demanding you know, school reports and all this kind of nonsense, treating them as suspects. And she said to me, this can't be legal because of GDPR. GDPR. Um, General Data Processing Regulations. Mm -hmm. And she said, she said, I've been sitting in all these, you know, these briefing meetings at City Hall telling you what you can and can't do, do with data. And how can you tell a woman who's just been raped that she has to hand over everything about her life, her medical records, her school records, her phone, her, mm -hmm. her computers? This cannot be reasonable or legal. So we decided to make a complaint to the Information Commissioner. And I think we did that in maybe 2018. And I remember early 2019, we had a meeting at City Hall with some people from the Information Commissioner's office. And they were already aghast at the amount of information that was being demanded from, from rape victims. I mean, the idea that to hand over your mobile phone, you've been raped, you're handing over the contents of your life, basically. If I handed over my phone now, I would be absolutely in just... I would be devastated at what they might find 
on it personal yes. effects of mine. And one of the things that the, the people from the IOC, the, the Information Commissioner's Office, pointed out at that very first meeting was that even if you give them permission to look at what's on your phone, you, you, they haven't got permission from all the uh, all the people who've ever sent you an email, all the people who've ever sent you a text. So they were pretty aghast. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. And it wasn't until, I think it was last month, that the, we actually got the report from the Information Commissioner's Office. And it's absolutely devastating. And it's said, you know, the, the women being told, it was, it, the, the form is called a Stafford form, giving, you know, a blanket permission to look to go through a woman's life and they said this has got to stop immediately but I see I see a direct link from what was happening in the 1970s and 80s to what's happening now and right. it's actually got worse because all of that suspicion of women the idea that women women who step out of line in any way show any independence they they are prostitutes or or as good as that's that was their attitude and now it's got to the point where it's not just that but you're actually a suspect you report one of the most serious crimes that yes. can be done in this country and you become the suspect that's right i see a direct link i mean at the moment we have the lowest conviction rate rate for rape than we've ever known exactly. since records were kept yes. but i think i mean i don't know what you think of this but on top of that the criminal justice system's failure to respond to violence against women and girls is the rise of the liberal faux feminism and the so-called progressives, a lot of men love this kind of faux feminism, that tells us that we enjoy being choked, we enjoy being spat at, we enjoy having our heads shoved down the toilet and, and anally penetrated by several men, which is, of course, depictions from regular mainstream pornography now yes. and and that that is something that now goes alongside the failure of the criminal justice system but also we as feminists trying to to fix this problem we're accused of being carceral feminists or oh, white yes. feminists yes. because we want to see some men in prison. And I would assume you're the same as me. You'd empty our prisons of everyone except for those dangerous to yes. others. Yes, absolutely. But, but what, what is this rise of the kind of faux feminism that is just deeply anti-feminism? Where the hell does it come from? I think it's incredibly defensive. I think it's, you know, there's always been women um, who identify with men. Um, who don't want to be um, targets of misogyny and have a kind of... I think we all grow up with a, with a kind of visceral understanding of, of how much women are disliked. Yes. And one of the ways women react to that is by kind of separating themselves from other women and feminists and, you know, being a good sport... You know, being up for it, all of that kind of yes. thing. And Enjoying sex and proving that you like it. As yes, opposed to and I think there was... And, you know, it, it was quite seductive about 20, 20, 30 years ago because, you know, coming... I, I grew up in a family where, um, you know, a cousin got into trouble and had to get married and, you know, there was right. all the whispering behind the back and everything and I thought this was really terrible. So, you know, for me, the idea that you could have sex outside marriage and that you could control your fertility was actually quite exciting. Mm. But that's very different from saying you've got to have sex with every bloke who appears. Yeah, and also the kind of... I mean, I know it's a US import. And in fact, I've just been over to New York writing about restorative justice measures being used in rape cases where you sit around in a trust circle, for God's sake. But, but the, the allegation of carceral feminists where... And I quote directly from one of the activists, Black Lives Matter activists, but there are many others um, that spout the same stuff, um, including many white liberals that we feminists, those of us that work 
to criminalise dangerous sexual predators, are responsible for the incarceration of black men more than any other group of people. White women have become the problem when it comes to critical race theory yes. and that kind of approach. And, it's, and there's so many black feminists that are very angry about this because they too want to see their rapists in prison because black men tend to rape black women. Yes, and th this is what gets just completely forgotten in this new discourse. I mean, when you updated Misogynies, which year was it? That um, it's about 2012, 2013. So when you updated the book, um, revamped it, added to it, what was it that you saw as different and new from when you'd written it? All I did was rewrite the int introduction, um, but... See, I think there's one thing I got wrong when I wrote Misogynies, which is that I, I was more optimistic in those days, and I thought I was writing about um, a historical phenomenon. And I thought it came out of the um, physical imbalance between men and women, and the fact that, I, well, I still think there's an element of truth in this, that men are physically more powerful than women on the whole. And, you know, for centuries they had all of the power and we didn't. But they are still given birth to by women, and as small boys, they are in the power as they, some of them see it as women. And I think it breeds a huge resentment. But I thought once you have a you know much greater degree of equality, so so you you have the paradox of women not being valued, but actually you know having this power over children. I thought once the once women start to have more value, um, maybe men won't feel that anymore, and maybe maybe I'm writing about the tail end of a phenomenon, and that's the thing I got wrong, unfortunately. But we have to hang on to that optimistic view of our work, mm. and you can call it a utopia, but I just think it's it's it makes sense that because so many of us are doing this work, and we've got real vision and commitment that we can imagine a world without male violence. Not, none of it's inevitable, is it? No, no, no. And you see, this, this is one of the things that annoys me about the whole discourse around rape, because people are pessimistic about rape, and they say, look, you know, well, yes, it is awful that so few, that so few rapists go to prison, but it's inevitable because it's he said, said she said. But that's only no. true if you actually think that everything that men say is true and everything that women say is false. And anyway, I've been in, uh, as, as have you, I've sat through many rape trials, and looked at the papers at the Crown Prosecution Service, rape cases that haven't gone forward. I've interviewed rape victims, I've interviewed rapists. And there's always corroboration, yes. if only the police would look for it. Yes. Um, it's interesting what you say about wanting to see misogyny as some kind of historical phenomenon. I wrote Andrea Dawkins' obituary for The Guardian, and we were friends prior to her death in 2004, and she was a great controversial figure, but there's nothing controversial about her in many ways I didn't mm. always agree with her but I ended the obituary with the line uh, with a question she was asked once in an interview which was how would you like to be remembered and she said um, as a relic in a museum <laughs> because patriarch is dead it was something uh. like I wouldn't be necessary anymore and that is I think the best that we can wish for ourselves but tell me about your work now so as you know, back in 2013, I became co-chair of the mayor, <coughs> excuse me, mayor of London's Violence Against Women and Girls Board, and that was very interesting. So it was an unpaid job, and I was brought in as an independent person. And so the mayor is, of course, the police commissioner for London, and um, so the Vogue Board exists to kind of draw up the strategy around. Um, 
reducing violence against women and girls in London and making the experience better for victims. But one of the things that happened was that that gave me contact with quite senior cops for the first time. And um, also sort of, you know, very interesting briefings about crimes and so on. And what became very frustrating to me was just the sense of, you know, you could change things around the edges, but that there is this central problem which didn't seem to me to be being, being addressed. So for three years, Boris Johnson was the mayor, then Sadiq Khan became the mayor. And, um, I mean, I'm not underestimating the scale of the problem, but one of the things that I began to be very concerned about was, the, was what seemed to me nobody kind of actually addressing the problem with the Metropolitan Police. And I'm sure this isn't just about the Met, because I'm sure other police forces are pretty mm, terrible. But well. the Met are pretty yes. grim on that scale. And, you know, you know, I would one of the things that, when, when Boris Johnson was mayor, and there was a strange period in my life where I used to say, Boris Johnson and I did this, that and the other, which is unexpected. <laughs> um, one of the things we did was launch um, a thing called the Violence Against Women and Girls dashboard on the Mayor of Mayor's uh, website. And so, um, the statistical um, section at, at City Hall gets raw data from the Metropolitan Police. And it's a fantastic resource. It's a map of London. You can click on every borough. You can, you can go down to ward level, see how many rapes, how many serious sexual yes. assaults, how many domestic violence incidents. And it's a resource that many women's organisations and feminists have used. Yes, but they're just going up and they're going up yes. and they're going up. And I got more and more concerned about this and, um, and particularly about you know, the, the imbalance. Once they started using the Stafford forms, and you could just see the... It was like everybody's kind of paralysed. Yeah, isn't it terrible? Rapes are go, rape, rape convictions are going down. Rapes are going up. But, yeah, so what, what do we do about this? So I think what, what crystallised it for me was the, was the response to Sarah Everard, Everard's rape and murder. So um, that was in March last year. So what do you mean specifically about the response? So that was in March last year. By the end of that month we had the highest number of reported rapes in London that we'd had for 10 years. So what happened to her was part of a, a, a really big and growing problem. So I, um, I thought, this is so bad that... And there was also the, 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 the way the police handled the murders of um, Nicole Smallman and Beaver Henry, the two women whose bodies were found in a park. And the mum has argued, because both are women of colour, that way less attention was paid yes, to the women. Yes. So all of that, the fact that, you know, officers who were called to, to um, secure the scene in the park where the, the sisters were murdered actually took photographs and shared them. I mean, all of that and the fact that um, Wayne Cousins, who, who kidnapped um, Sarah uh, Everard, was... Um, was nicknamed the rapist. I mean, I mean, what 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 it said to me was that you know it was evidence of a culture I'd suspected for a long time. So I proposed to one of one of the deputy mayors that um, I asked. I, I said I think we should call for any, a sort of McPherson-style inquiry into um, institutional misogyny yes. in the police. And w would the mayor support that? And they just said, let's talk about it. Wouldn't do it. So I wrote a piece in the Guardian calling for that. Um, and then the day after Sarah Everard's body was found, um, I was about to go on Woman's Hour and talk about, you know, the context of that murder. And I got a call from one of the deputy mayors and she said, oh, the mayor, Sadiq Khan, asked me to ring you to, to ask what he should say about the murder of Sarah Everard. What? And yet he 
not taken your suggestion. Well, I think I made that afterwards, but but I think I've got the chronology sort of slightly backwards. But um, I was rather taken aback by that because he'd been mayor for um, five years by then. Yes. And he's the police and crime commissioner. So why uh, wouldn't he know? Why wouldn't he know? So um, I said, well, one of the first things he needs to do is put a thousand miles between himself and the police commissioner, um, Cresta Dick. Um, because, you know, what she said last night at her press conference was appalling. Cause yes. you, you about the one bad apple. Yes. Um, so that was that. And then a few weeks later, I got another call from a deputy mayor, from the same deputy mayor, saying, oh, Sadiq Khan asked me to call you, um, and he, he wanted me to ask you what he should say about violence against women in his election campaign. Right. And I was just aghast at all yes. this. Because it's his job. And And he... I would bet that he wouldn't be asking about other social problems from other advisers that isn't to do with violence against yes. women. So then, so Sarah's murder was in the March, and um, there's a, there's a, in the July, I was in a, meet, a Zoom meeting chaired by Sadiq Khan, and the dep one of the deputy mayors was there, um, the deputy commissioner, Sir Steve House, was there, um, you know, head of um, CPS, or a big, sort of quite um, high powered meeting. And Hello, darling. One of your cats has come to <laughs> say hello and <laughs> shout. Which one are you? Rufus. Rufus, you're a very naughty boy. <laughs> so, 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 um, so, Sadiq Khan talked about um, uh, knife crime, drugs, robbery, um, uh, all of that. Um, and I was waiting. Well, when are we going to talk about violence against women? didn't happen so I went into the chat and I said given the appalling rape figures in London which, which are at a record level and the murder and rape and murder of Sarah Everard I'm just wondering why we're not talking about violence against women and girls and the deputy mayor came in the chat and said oh it'll, it'll be in the next um, policing and crime plan mm. and I said but why are we not talking about it now so at the end of the meeting Sadiq Khan said um, oh I see Joan is concerned that you know we we didn't discuss violence against women and girls at this meeting and he said I just want to reassure her that it's very very close to my heart and we will discuss it at the next meeting in October. Wow. And I was horrified. But of course, the following month I was sacked. Uh, why do you think you were sacked? Um, I mean, we all went berserk when we heard you were sacked. <laughs> so, what had been happening for about... It started about a year or maybe 18 months before that. So I was approached by some of the women... Um, who run refuge services and services for victims in London, who were very worried about their um, their grants from the mayor, which which form a substantial part of their funding, because they said they were coming under pressure to agree to um, allow male-bodied trans women to share facilities with female victims of crime, and so female victims of male violence. Of male violence, yes. So. Um, I and Karen Ingala-Smith, who's the CEO of NIA, um, we wrote to um, the deputy mayor um, for policing and crime um, asking for a meeting with her and said we were very concerned about the fact that the mayor, Sadiq Khan, keeps tweeting, you know, trans women are women and all of this. Yes. Um, I, we said, you know, we think this is having a chilling effect on women who work in the sector because um, they, fear lose, they, they, they feel they can't speak out and there are very, very good reasons and also it's, it's a legal, um, you know, uh, a right that women can have women-only services. So she wrote back um, 
took her months and she wrote back and said, oh, the mayor is a long-standing ally of the trans community and he believes they don't have their full human rights. And, um, and it was very mealy-mouthed. So we wrote again and she didn't answer. Mm-hmm. So then, in I think October 2020, we wrote to Sadiq Khan. And, one, and before we wrote the letter, I looked up his voting record when he was a Labour MP. And in December 2009, he voted for what was then the Equality Bill and its exceptions, uh-huh. which became the 2010 Equality Act. Yes, very handy. So we said in our letter to him, we have a very specific question for you, which is that as a Labour MP, you voted for the Equality Act 2010 and its exemptions. And... We are, not, we are not clear where you stand on this. And could you tell us whether you still support the exceptions in the Act, and particularly the one which allows single-sex spaces? And if not, could you let us know? Because that should be a matter of public mm-hmm. debate, because it's, it has a huge impact. So that was October 2020. Still waiting. Right. He's one of the many people I write to and never get letters back from. <laughs> it's one of my little hobbies. <laughs> How interesting. And yet... There you were, giving your time, unpaid, Yes. as an advisor, and you were a really helpful conduit between the bureaucracy and the women's sector and feminist campaigners trying to address this problem. In other words, you were trying to help them do the right thing. Yes. Now, with this context of backlash, um, of doors being closed, of the real difficulties that we've got, that feminists have got in tackling male violence against women. Give us your thoughts on what we do next. Let's end on a note of, okay, (laughs) things are grim. You and I know that. We know it. But how do we carry on and how do we carry on feeling positive and how do we support each other to do it? I think, well, I think we're getting pretty near rock bottom. And you get to a point where things are so bad that there's nowhere else to go but to start improving. And I, I, I do have a feeling that things are shifting. So I mentioned earlier the, the ICO report on, on, um, on the treatment of rape victims. That is actually going to change how the police handle rape cases um, because otherwise um, they will have action taken against them by the ICO, which has all kinds of powers to find yes. and so on. So I think that will have to prompt... Um, a shift in how women who report rape are treated. But I think, I think we have to have a cultural shift about how women are seen because it seems to me that rape cases are actually not that difficult because what men are saying about women wanting to have sex with them is utterly preposterous. Mm-hmm. That a woman who is drunk and cannot possibly know who the man is or give consent... We, we still allow him the benefit of the doubt because he might really have believed yes. that she consented. This is nonsense. I mean, let's have some of the scepticism that's been applied to women throughout the centuries yeah. and apply mm-hmm. it to what men say. Well, and let, let's get them into court and let's get a jury to make up their mind. Put the facts in front of a jury. Yes. I mean, both you and I believe very much in the rule of law, in the right to the defendant to have a fair trial. We don't want to change the law to tip that balance, but a friend of mine, Alice Vax, who was a uh, sex crimes prosecutor in the Queen's District of New York, brilliant woman, they have special prosecutors there, so they have real experts, um, and they're able to talk to the complainant, not to coach them, but to actually just 
deal with the evidence yeah. and they're very much part of collecting that evidence the prosecutors in that department and Alice managed to achieve while still keeping the rights of the defendant absolutely at the centre an 85% conviction rate from those that went to court yes. and that is because these cases are put before a jury and at the moment as you know what we've got is the CPS deciding that no jury would convict, yes. so therefore don't put them forward. And which cases are they, do we, do we wonder? <laughs> which cases aren't they putting forward? Who are the women that complain that are not ever seeing justice? I mean, they're the additionally vulnerable women, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's right. But I think also that something really curious has happened, which is that, in a way, the whole debate about trans issues has has exposed something, which is a very, very profound misogyny. I so, agree. So when, when I was writing misogynies, I think probably the most controversial chapter was the one about gay misogyny. Yes. And some people said to me, are you really sure you want to address this? And I said, yes, I do, because I come from that generation. When I went to university, um, you know, it was around the time when there was the campaign for homosexual equality and mm -hmm. things like that. I absolutely saw mm -hmm. that as analogous to feminism. Yes. And I thought, these men are our allies. What's happened to them mm. is terrible. What's happened to women is terrible. It was the terrible. first meeting I ever went to, a yeah. Shea meeting in Middlesbrough when I was 16. Yeah. And I was really, really shocked, you know, over the next few years to, to hear gay man, men, you know, who would say dismissively in front of me, a woman, would say, oh, well, I had sex once with a woman, but you can't call that real sex. Mm. You know, things like that. Mm. Friends of mine would say that. And I actually, I realised that, unfortunately, there was a, there was a strain of misogyny in that, in that culture. Yeah. And I wrote about it. And I think people were shocked by it, but it brought something out into the open. I think it, it kind of went away for a long time. And what's happened is the trans issue, which in many ways has got nothing to do with gay and lesbian, well, you know more than I do. Um, it, it's a different matter altogether, a different issue. But and look at who the most outspoken allies are yes. in the media. They're a type of gay man that refuses to accept that this isn't the same as fighting against Clause 28 in the yes. 80s that they weren't even there at. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think what it's done is it's given a free pass to a lot of people who've had to shut up about misogyny for many years, and it's all come roaring out. But it, they've taken it to such a degree that I think, I, I, you know, I just, people, saw it, people started talking to me about it um, spontaneously. I mean, I, I suppose they guess what my view is. But it's, it's really interesting how angry people are about the denial of, you know, basic women's rights. Yes. Like, you know, if, if I'm sick and I'm in a hospital ward, I don't want a man in there who says he's a woman. Yes. You know, if a woman, women who go to prison are, are vulnerable, most of them are victims of domestic violence. You know this better than I do. And of course they don't want to share the showers with somebody who has a, a you know, a, a functioning male body. Um, I mean, this, this is absolutely obvious. And I think, I think it happened very much by stealth. I agree. And now that it's coming out into the open, I think people are quite shocked by it. And and it's it, one of the things that's interesting is, you know, I, I've got into a sort of, um, a, a, not exactly a debate with Keir Starmer over it since he doesn't respond, but um, it was very interesting confronting him the other night. I saw the photographs of you at the Labour Women's Dinner, was this, yes. is that right? Yes. And there's a great picture of you leaning forward towards him and him looking both scared and attentive at yes. whatever you were saying to him. And then the other women, the other feminists, whom I recognised, sitting down at the dinner table watching. Well, I, I went to that in the hope there would be a chance to speak to him. Because I wrote to him in February last year. As I told you, my hobby is writing to people who don't write back. 
Um, what they don't realise is I keep writing, I'm not put off. Anyway, um, so I, I wrote him quite a long letter in February of last year, a polite letter saying, look, let me introduce myself. I'm the author of Misogynies, and I'm writing to you because I'm horrified by the level of misogyny being experienced by women in the Labour Party, which I am reluctantly still a member of. And I mentioned an incident... Um, that we were both at in um, West London in March of 2020, just before the pandemic began, when, when there were smoke bombs outside the meeting. And it was near yeah. Grenfell. Grenfell. Uh, it was, in fact, in the Grenfell Community Centre. And we were talking about how we remained in the Labour Party when we were being kicked out for refusing to say trans women are women and how we can move forward as left-wing feminists. Yes. And I remember that moment, because I was sitting near one of the doors, I remember smelling smoke and thinking, oh, my God, is the building on fire? And, of course, they'd been chanting and screaming outside throughout the meeting. Turfs and hate crime and hate speech So I and mentioned all the rest that incident, and I said, look, this is the kind of thing that's happening to women in the Labour Party who get together and try and talk about what are our legal rights. And um, I, I said, misogyny is rife in the party. You don't speak out about it. I'm really shocked by that. And so, you know, sent him the letter posted it to make sure he'd get it nothing so um and in, re in recent months you know he's been terrible all this thing of you know he failing to support rosie duffield and things like that yes so i went to that that dinner in the hope that i'd get a chance and he came in it was quite a crowded restaurant and he was sort of stopping and speaking to people so i leapt to my feet smiled at him put my hand out and i suppose you know it was just a reflex he took my hand and smiled so i held on to his hand held on to it brilliant <laughs> Brilliant. And I said, hi, I'm Joan Smith. I'm the author of a famous book called Misogynies. And I said, I wrote to you 15 months ago about misogyny in the Labour Party and the bullying and harassment of women like me and my friends. And I said, I never got a reply. And he, I had his hand, you see. So I held on to it. And he looked. And he said, well, all I can do is apologise. And I never saw it. And I said, well, there's something wrong with your office then, isn't there? And I said, you know, I wrote to you about being at a meeting where we were attacked with smoke bombs. And I said, it looks to me like you don't care a thing about this. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know anything about this so I said okay I'm going to write to you again and I'm going to enclose my first letter and I said my name is Joan Smith don't forget because you'll be getting a letter from me wonderful and then I let him go and then the next woman got up on our table and said and um hi and I'd just like to ask you do you support single sex spaces <laughs> anyway so a couple of days later I wrote to him and I, I reminded him of the of the incident and I said, Here's my original letter. And I said, I would like you and I would like you to agree to meet the Labour Women's Declaration, who represent feminists in the Labour Party. Um, and um, I would like you to condemn the kind of violence and abuse that we've had and so on. So I sent that. I posted it, I sent it to two email addresses. Nothing. Nothing. Wow. Well, um, thank you for your service. <laughs> And, obviously, we'll keep on. I've also written to Margaret Beckett twice, and she hasn't written back to me, and she's the chair of... See, this is interesting. I was on LBC with Margaret Beckett. She is the chair of the NEC. Um, so there was, it was one of those phone-in programmes where people ring, listeners ring in with a question. And one of them I used, it was about free speech, I used to, to get it onto the Labour Party, and I said, look, what's happening in the Labour Party is that lots of women who agree that we're entitled to single-sex spaces are afraid to speak out. I said, you know, it's actually a form of censorship. Yes. And it's really serious. She said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I, at the end of the programme, I said, I'll write to you. So I wrote to her. 
and uh, I copied in LBC and I said, you know, I'm really concerned that you don't know about this, but I, I know a lot, so can of I... Of course she knows about it. Yes, I know. So she didn't answer. So I, I wrote again and I said... Um, uh, I think perhaps your office has missed my letter, so I'm writing again. Of course she doesn't write back. friend of mine who's, who knows her, he called her. She doesn't answer his messages, you know. Um, I mean, they're all avoiding it. Yes. But I think the thing is they can't go on avoiding it. They can't. And the more of us that get angry about being dismissed and ignored, the more that they'll have to see that this is a growing crisis for them. It's no it longer a problem, is. it's a no, crisis. It's a crisis, I agree, I agree, I agree. And it shocks me, you know, my father who was a kind of working-class supporter of the Labour Party, he took me... Um, I lived briefly in Yorkshire when I was a child in Dewsbury, and I remember my dad taking me to hear Hugh Gateskill, then leader of the Labour Party, speaking from the balcony of, of, of uh, Dewsbury Town Hall when I was about six. And, you know, in my house... Um, people talked about Harold Wilson and Nye Bevan as if they were my uncles or something. Yes. You know, and and when I was when I in 1964, my dad took me to hear Shirley Williams speak because we were living in that constituency, and Harold Wilson introduced her, and um, he said, you know, that this is going to be the next prime minister, and I loved all these people. Yes. Can you imagine now Barbara Castle being asked, Barbara, can a can a man have a have a cervix? I probably can imagine what she would say. But Joan, you've been wonderful. This has been a great interview. It's Thank been you. It's a great pleasure. And uh, I'm sure our paths will cross again very soon. I hope so. I'm sorry about all the wind chimes. No, the wind chimes are great, actually. They're good, aren't they? I love them. Thank you so much to Joan for speaking to me about these really important issues. And I know we're going to carry on this conversation. As we said, at the moment we're going through what we both consider to be unbridled misogyny and consider that as part of a, a major backlash against feminism. But we persevere. Thank you for listening. <laughs>